If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Romans chapter 5, please? We've been going through the book of Romans in Christ Church at home. We're just having an absolute blast in it. And next week, we come to the end of chapter 8, and then we start to chapter 9 in January. And so I want to read you a passage from Romans, a passage which you may not have heard unless you've gone through Romans, preached on before. Um, But I think it's a vitally important passage. It seems initially to be quite complicated, but my hope is to be able to open it up a bit and serve you so that it becomes clear, and then we see how it affects our heart in it. So Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. Here we go. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification." If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this church. Lord, I thank you for saving us in order that we may gather together and proclaim your glorious gospel in this city and beyond. And Lord, I thank you for these wonderful truths that we've read, and pray that in my weakness you may help me to be able to serve these wonderful people effectively. And Lord, as we see this scripture, you by your Holy Spirit might bring it alive to us. Lord, may we see Christ and him crucified. May it affect our hearts, may it fill our minds, and may it change our wills for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. One guy I was reading about this said this, have you ever, perhaps late at night, perhaps early in the morning, felt the frightening weight and ugliness of your own sinfulness? 
and had a sinking feeling in your stomach that if you died right there and then, you were not sure that you would go to heaven, but perhaps be cast by a just and holy God into everlasting fire, away from the presence of His glory. If you come to that place, and you will come to that place at some time, what is it you will need to know to dispel your fears, still your heart, and bring you a real assurance of God's love and acceptance of you? You will need to know, my title, the triumph of sovereign grace. What we've read about here, I hope to show you, is about the triumph of sovereign grace. Now, folks, not the triumph of sovereign grace ministries or sovereign grace church, but in some ways, hopefully, defining sovereign grace biblically. What does it mean? The triumph of sovereign grace. John Piper says about this passage, which is quite funny as I'm preaching on it. He says, it is commonly agreed that Romans 5, 12 through 21 is among the most difficult passages in Romans, <laughs> if not the entire New Testament. As a result, when we read this section, it is difficult to stay with the flow of thought. Okay, so that's a, that's a good start, isn't it? So I've decided to bring a passage to you that Piper says, this is probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament. It's difficult to remain with a flow of thought. And he took seven messages to go through this. I'm going to try and do it in half an hour in one. Ha, 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 ha. But here we go. Um, what Paul is doing at this point, and it is drawing together, the first, Romans 8, chapter 1 through chapter 8, is the gospel according to Paul. It's his treatise. He's opening it up. He, it's set in a courtroom setting, the whole of that first section of Romans. He opens it up by putting mankind in the dock before God and accuses mankind of cosmic treason. You have rebelled against the Creator who created you. You were made for His glory. He has revealed Himself to you in many ways, yet you worship yourself, the creature, in a way that you don't worship the Creator. You've dulled your mind, turned your back away from God, and all men are held guilty. And in this you find that man in the dock calls the law into, into the dock and says, look, he's a character witness of how well I've worked. And the law says, mm, sorry, you're worse than you think. You know, there is none that worships God. There is none that loves God. Not one. There is none that obeys him. And this courtroom scene plays out. And you realize that man doesn't have a leg to stand on. So the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3, it says that, that man's mouth is shut. So he's standing there, head hung down, the whole of the weight of God's accusation against mankind causes the, the declaration of guilty. There is none that seeks God, no, not one, altogether have become worthless. And then you get this glorious, probably the most important few verses in the whole of the Scripture. Romans 3, verse 21 through 26, but now... The righteousness of God, which before condemned it, but now a righteousness of God, the acceptance of God, the relationship with God, there is a righteousness of God apart from works has been revealed. 
What it means is now God's going to show a righteousness and acceptance between him and mankind apart from anything we do. Through the propitiation that Christ gains through his blood, through the redemption in Christ Jesus because of the cross, now mankind can be reunited with God all because of Christ, not because of what we do. It's staggering, it's glorious, it's incredible, and it's this point in Romans 3 where you just go, ah, scandalous, incredible grace. And then he goes on from 3 through 4, 5, 6, 7, and into 8 to explain what that looks like and what that means even in the midst of sin that still indwells, that although its dominion is broken, and suffering that continues because we're still in this body and in this world. And he explains all of that and then comes to the end of Romans, the beginning of Romans 8, and makes this incredible declaration. You know, if you want to get a tat, get this tat. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then at the end of the, like the, end of the courtroom scene, it's like, okay, not guilty. And then you've got them coming out of the courtroom at the end of Romans 8 with all the people with microphones and the cameras saying, so then what should we say to this? And you go, ah, oh, if God be for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son but gave him up, how much will he not together with him freely give us all things? It's like this interview at the end. It's a, it's, it's, you've just got to picture it in this way. But in the middle of this, he starts to open up for assurance because even though we can hear Romans 3.21, therefore there is, you know, we have this, this righteousness of God that is given us apart from what we do because of what Christ has done. Now, he wants to explain that more and more so that there's an assurance in our hearts. So that at that moment where you think, when you look at your life and you think about who you are, you think, will God ultimately on that day say, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me? Am I really in Christ? Is it really real? What Paul's going to do is try and open it up and show us even more what that means and he gets into this quite complicated stuff. And what he's going to do is he's going to contrast and compare Adam and Christ. So stick with me, okay? Piper says it's complicated. He's right. But it's glorious if we can get it. Stick with me. I got three points because that's what preachers have. Three points, yeah. And I want to show you the similarity between Adam and Christ because that's what Paul's doing and the difference between Adam and Christ and what it means to us. First point is this. Our biggest problem is not our personal sins, but our personal standing. I'm going to explain that to you. We're going to go back, in some ways, in our mind to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden, where God creates man as the pinnacle of his creation. God creates Adam as his representative on earth. Adam is there to represent God to the whole of creation. He is not designed to die, and he is the reflection, the glory of God. And in the garden, you know what happens. Satan tempts Adam and, says, and tempts Eve, and Adam takes of the fruit, which is basically showing Adam saying, I'll do it my way, I'm going to go my way. I don't need you. I'm no longer going to reflect your glory. I'm going to live for my glory. And Adam sins. He's the father of us all. He's the, our representative of the whole of mankind. Wrath 
God's wrath and death to us are first because we are in Adam. This is so important. This is important that we understand that we stand condemned in the dock before God, not because of what you did last week or last year or through your life. Primarily, we stand condemned in the dock because of our unity, our identity in Adam himself. When Adam sinned, we sinned in him. When Adam fell, we fell. So through one man and his consequences, the sin of Adam was imputed to everybody who came from Adam. So the fact that you've been born a human being what from Adam's, you know, the race means that his rebellion became your rebellion. Just like if you're in a company and the president of the company starts to, you know, rip off the people that, that you're working for and the company goes bust, everybody in the company is indicted, everybody's affected by it, by what he does. We're all affected by what Adam's done. That's what this is saying. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death, the consequence of that, through sin. And so death spread to all men because, because we're in Adam, all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, who was the one who, who was to come. Let me explain what he's saying here. He's saying, we were in the garden with Adam. When he fell, we fell. Death spread to all men. We became diseased, corrupted, tainted. It's in our very genes. We are rebels with a cause to go our own way. Verse 13 explains it's not just our breaking the law personally. That death came in before the law, before we just, God said, do this and don't do this. Death was in before that. No, it was our unity with Adam that caused us to, be, to die. Death reigned even though we may not have sinned like Adam. Death is the consequence for our lives. So when the curse came on Adam, you will surely die. That was to Adam and everyone else that came from Adam. People died even though their individual sins against the law were not the reason for death. They weren't counted, it says here. What counted was our identity in Adam. Because all sinned, it says in verse 12, not by imitation, we just did what Adam did, but by participation. This is where Pelagius got it wrong. Pelagian heresy, Pelagius said there's no inherent initial sin that we're not participating in original sin, that we're born clean. The Scripture doesn't say that. It's saying here, no, you were born dirty. You were born against God. You participated in Adam's fall when Adam fell. That's the case for every person in this room. You're Adam's, you're from Adam's genes. And therefore, God's anger against Adam is toward the whole human race. We are all cosmic rebels because of our unity with Adam. So he is our federal head. We talk about that. Our representative. You see it right through. Verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16. 
the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation for us all. Verse 17, because Adam, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by one man's trespass, many were made sinners. So you got the message. And this is important because if we miss this, we start to go on our own goodness and our own works or our own badness. You and God and everybody that's been born has been born in Adam. Adam represented us. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam fell, we fell. The curse that fell on Adam falls on all of us. We are born into that. We are estranged from God. And so God sees everyone in Adam. That's why we are considered guilty of cosmic treason. We were in him in the garden. So you get this cry at the beginning of Genesis when Adam rebels against God. Oh, Adam, what have you done? The consequences of this are enormous for the whole human race. And that's why, you know, we sometimes say, well, how can God condemn in some ways? How can God be opposed to nice people, good people? You know, he's a nice guy. How can you say that God would be angry rejecting an individual? How can you say that God wouldn't just love that person and bring him into heaven because they're such a nice person? Because they're in Adam. And he sees them in Adam. When Adam fell, that person fell. As nice as they may seem, they are stained with Adam's sin. There's a, in the Apocrypha, in Estros, to Estros, it says this, O thou Adam, what hast thou done? For though it was thou that sinned, the evil is not fallen on thee alone, but upon all of us that come from thee. Now, Paul wants them to get this, and he wants us to get it. Because unless we get that point, we won't get what Christ has done and what it means for us now. So Paul would say in Ephesians 2, Therefore we are, by nature, children of wrath. Very nature. God imputes the failure and sin of Adam to all humanity. We have all marred the image of God because of our place. Second point, Christ is like Adam. Okay, Christ is like Adam. Or we could say it this way, as Paul says it, Adam is a type of Christ, a picture of Christ. So as we were in Adam, so we are now in Christ, if we are a Christian. Stick with me here, because this gets fantastic in the end when you get it all. Christ is called in Scripture the last Adam. So we have the first Adam who we are linked with, and now Christ comes, the first Adam, foreshadows. It says here in verse 14 that he is the type of one who is to come. This is the premise that Paul's saying. Just as we are in Adam, our humanity, our nature, and therefore accounted sinners through his transgression, so now, in Christ, we are now, by nature, accounted righteous through the perfect life 
and death of Jesus Christ. By nature, we were children of wrath, and now by nature, we are a new race, a new humanity, the Scripture calls it. That's why the virgin birth is so important, because one was born no longer tainted with Adam's sin. One was born not with Adam as his father, but with God as his father. And so in Christ, this is what he's saying, in Christ it all changes. So 1 Peter, 2 Peter will say, therefore you are like a new race, a chosen race, a holy people. Or Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, you see we're in Adam, we're born, we're in Adam, but if anyone through repentance and faith is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So this is what he goes on to explain from verse 15. He talks about the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, the free gift of Christ's death and resurrection brought justification. Verse 17, the effect of Adam's sin brought death. The effect of Christ's obedience means we reign in life. Verse 18, one act of righteousness, Christ's life, leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. So this is what you've got. This changes, this, if you get this, this changes the fear that sometimes comes upon us of, will God continue to accept me? When I look at my life, when I look at what I do and who I am, this changes it because it takes us out of ourselves into this cosmic, glorious plan of God. I was created in Adam, and therefore, in him, I am, I am an enemy of God. But in Christ now, I'm a new creation. So Adam falls, the cry rings out from Genesis all the way down through history. Oh no, what have you done? Christ cries, it is finished on the cross, and everything changes. Two cries that rung down, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, change everything. God imputes the success, the righteous life of Christ to his new humanity. That's what he's saying here. So for our sake... Paul was saying to Corinthians, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Christ now is our representative. His one act on the cross has implications for all humanity in the way the one act of Adam had implications for all humanity. It changes everything. Okay, second point. Third point, then we bring it together. Third point is this. The second point is like Christ is like Adam. Third point is Christ is not like Adam. That's what he's saying here. So in verse 15, he talks about the free gift that we get is not like the trespass. And in verse 16, he says, the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. So in some ways, he said, it's like this, 
And now Paul's saying, but it's not like this. How is it not like? How is Christ not like Adam? It's not a simple difference. Christ is like Adam. They both stand and act as our representative before God. But Christ is the complete opposite to Adam and so much more. So much more. Look at this much more in here. Verse 15, you see, much more. See that? For the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more. You're going to see this all the way through this bit. Verse 17, he says the same. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Verse 20 he keeps going on. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what Paul's saying simply is this. Look, you are a cosmic rebel because of Adam. You were in Adam when he sinned. And everyone who comes from Adam is an enemy of God. It wasn't your sin that caused you to be an enemy of God. It was Adam's sin but you continue to sin anyway. Then, when Christ comes and dies on the cross, for those who receive him, when you are in Christ and his righteousness is given to you and your sin is put upon him, you are now in Christ. You have a new nature. It's a new humanity. You have a new father, God himself. It changes everything. Christ is our head now, just as Adam was our head, but it's so much more. It's so much more. He's the complete opposite. One trespass, condemnation for all, verse 16. Christ's obedience, justification for many trespasses. So one act, we all get condemned, but Christ's death on our behalf covers many acts. Not only Adam, but all of our acts of sin. It covers them, past, present, and future. It's like, uh, remember the oil leak, the BP oil leak, which is, can I just say, it's no longer British Petroleum. It hasn't been for 10 years, but the Yanks don't get that. Um, God bless them. Um, but, sorry, uh, but the, the, the oil leak came, it only takes a little crack, a little break, and the mess is horrific. I mean, it's just... It, it's easy to break that thing, but to clean up the mess, oh man, where do you start? Where do you start to stop the rot and clean it all up? What Paul's saying here is that, okay, there was one trespass that led to condemnation, but Christ's work is so great. Not only does he restore that, he cleans it all up. He changes everything. So much more is the abundance of grace than what took place. So, Imagine it like this. Adam, imagine uh, in chemistry in school we used to do kind of pH things, you know, where you stick a bit of paper in, see how acidic or alkaline something was. Imagine Adam was, was created neutral with a big zero right in the middle or a pH 7 or whatever it is, but we'll call it zero. And then he sins and suddenly it goes down to minus 10. Christ comes and he doesn't live a perfect life and a sacrificial death and take it to plus 10. He takes it to plus 10,000. What Christ does is so much more. So the old hymn goes, In him, Christ, the tribes of Adam boast much more than their father lost. 
like whatever fell in Adam, what Christ has done has given us so much more. Is this for all? No, it's for those you see in verse 17. As many as those who receive Christ, as many of those who receive Him as Lord and Savior, His work is immense. It covers everything. It's far superior. So, when Adam's trespass meets Christ's grace, it is obliterated. That's the glorious thing that the gospel talks about, the, what's called the superabounding grace. It doesn't just make, put things back to the way they were before. John Piper says it this way. He says, it is sovereign grace, overwhelming, overruling grace. It is sovereign grace because it conquers everything in its path. This is the good news. You see, when the law comes, the law comes not to clean up the mess. The law comes to show us the mess we're in. Obeying the law, doing the religious things, doing the rituals, going through the stuff. Read your Bible, pray every day. If you want to grow, maybe right, but read your Bible, pray every day. If you want God to love you, it's not right. The law comes in, and we try and work through the law. It's like trying to clear up the mess of what Adam's done, and Adam's done in our own heart, and we can't do it. But what Christ does on the cross is come, and His superabounding grace, sovereign grace, wipes like a tsunami clean. All that Adam has done. In him now we are new creations. <coughs> Even though the law made us little Adams, through Christ and through his sovereign grace, it conquers everything in its past. It's obliterated. Adam failed because he wanted for himself more life, more knowledge. Christ succeeded because he emptied himself of all but love, died for Adam's helpless race. Now, let's stop and pull it all together. The so what of this? Because it seems like, well, this is kind of heavy theology, man. This is like, Piper's right. This is complicated. What are we talking about? One trespass led to condemnation for all men, one act of righteousness. It's like, yeah, I got that. I got this. Okay, this is simple. Uh, yeah. I'm born, I'm born a human being, therefore I'm born in Adam. When Adam sinned, I sinned in that sense because I participated by being, him being my head in that way. I get that, and then I continue to live that way anyway. But God rightfully puts me in the same boat as Adam and holds me accountable because I'm from him. Yeah, I got that. And Christ comes and die, lives a perfect life and dies on the cross, and I've received him as my Lord, and yet I get that now I am in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, his, my sin is on him. His perfect life is put on me. I'm a new creation. I get that. So why do I worry? Why does guilt sometimes grab hold of me? Why do I sometimes lie on my bed and think, Will you accept me? Here's why. We, we don't get it. We don't get it because we think it's still about what we do. Uh, do you know what? Our salvation is entirely, completely, utterly outside of ourselves. The moment we say, Lord, I receive you, we are transferred. And I'm a Calvinist. 
once we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the only thing that can get me back there is to undo the work of Christ, and that cannot be done. It's done. It's finished. It's over. It's completed. Past, present, future sins, all gone. Why? I am now in Christ. That's what it means when the Bible keeps talking about being in Christ. So we can sing it out, you know, I'm in Christ, and we could talk about being in Christ, but not know what it means. It means this. Adam is no longer your father. Christ is your father. Just as you couldn't get rid of the consequences of Adam's sin, here's the good news, you can't get rid of the consequences of Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death on your behalf. Not even your sin can get rid of what Christ has done. Just as you are his son in Adam, you are now a son of God through Christ. Done, finished, over, the end. Never change. Nothing can change it. Nothing will happen it with it. It's, it's over. It's, it's just, ah, ah. If the church could get this, everything changes. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And yet the world is full of guilty Christians. We're guilty because we don't feel we come up to the mark. But the good news is, my friends, it was never about us coming up to the mark. It was always ever about Christ coming up to the mark and us, therefore, being born again to a living hope through Christ Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection. It's, it is magnificent. So the songs we sing, the things we think about, it, it, even down to, you know, you can sit here. This is what happens to me. And this is what... I am filled with weaknesses. I am aware of them all the time. I am. I'm aware of just lust driving me at times. I'm aware of anger raising up in my heart. I'm aware of laziness. I'm aware of self-righteousness where I just think I know better and I am better. I'm aware of arrogance and pride where I just want to look good. Man, I'm even aware sometimes you can come to a meeting like this uh, and your heart is cold and everybody's singing the songs around you and you're singing them and you just think, this is not affecting me, this is not touching me, and you walk out and you think, who am I? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's even worse if you're a pastor. I think pastors don't get like that. Yeah, they do. My heart is a God. Here's the, here's the great news. It's not even the strength of your affections that makes any difference. Sure, does God want us to have strong affections? Yeah. Does, does strong affections affect his love for us and our standing with him? Nope. Does my sins and my failures and my weaknesses change whose son I am? No. It's over. It's finished. I am a new creation. I am in Christ. Just as I was in Adam... Now I am in Christ. Sin still messes me up. It's the squatter in my house who won't go away that God's left there. And yet, I am saved by sovereign grace that's wiped away all that Adam ever did. So Paul's going to go on from here, keep putting it together, saying, hey, yeah, you know what? It is tough. There is sin, and it's a struggle, Romans 7. There is suffering. He's going to go into Romans 4. But then he's going to come to this great declaration at the end of the courtroom scene and shout out in Romans 8, 1, 
there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's over. It's finished. And then at the end, in the interview, it's like, are you saying, I guess this means there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not, not, not life or death or principalities or powers or things that are or things that are to come or anything in height or depth. Or, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the realization that I am now a child of God through the glorious and wonderful work of Jesus Christ, nothing will change that. Nothing can change it. Do you know what I think is going to happen on that last day? I think a lot of Christians live with a terror that when they die and they stand before God, they think, I don't know if I was a real Christian because I looked at my life. And they're going to stand before God and He's going to say, welcome, enter into the kingdom. And it's like, but Lord, my life. And he'll say, but Pete, his life. But Lord, no, his death. I think there's going to be a lot of people there shocked. Shocked not because the self-righteous ones are going to go, oh, I'm going to be fine. Depart from me. Do you ever worry about that? And yet you've come to that point and you said, Lord, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And then you've spent your life worrying, is it real? Am I going to be there? And you stand before him, and you look at your life, and you think, oh, no. And he says, welcome. You're going to go, what? I think there's going to be a lot of people shocked to be welcomed in because they've not really fully realized through their life. It's been done. Christ has done it all. It always was. If we can understand that now, rest in that amazing grace, it'll take us safe all the way. We can enjoy the truth of it now. Guilt will not condemn us. Fear will not ensnare us. Christ will be all to us. And on that day, we'll know. So you've got these great hymns. Read some of these hymns, just little bits. You know, oh, you know. Uh, praise to the holiest in the height. You know that one? And in the depths be praised in all his works most wonderful, most sure in all his ways. O oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O oh, wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. When I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, at that moment, I am now born again. I'm taken out of Adam's group. I'm put into Christ's group. And in Christ, it is over and finished. I can never be transferred back. It can never go on. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It will always be there. It's finished. Glorious, wonderful, staggering, amazing truth. It's over. That's the gospel we preach. 
It's the gospel the scripture preaches. All of Christ, his work completely finished. So therefore, we can sing, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus, okay, listen, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed with righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne to claim the crown through Christ my own. Got it, Wesley. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, which is real, what do I do? Upward I look. See him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him. Pardon me. No longer in Adam. Now in Christ. End of story. Rest in it. Rest in it. Until we rest in it, we are never going to enjoy the grace of God and the grace of God cannot change us in the way it needs to change us. Change comes when you realize that change doesn't need to come for him to continue to accept and love you. Justification always precedes sanctification. A knowledge of it, a love of it, holding on to it, changes everything. So, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, he goes on, doesn't he? Uh, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should increase, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my utterly helpless estate as a child of Adam and has given his own blood, shed his own blood for my soul. Grace, grace, grace. It's the triumph of sovereign grace. Why do we say sovereign grace? Because it blasts away everything in its power. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and if you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're probably not, okay? You've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then here's the situation. You are in Adam. You may be a much, you probably are a much better person than I am. You, you, uh, I'm sure that you've lived a better life than I have. Yet you've still got the same problem I've got. You are tainted and diseased and held responsible because of what Adam did. And you are one of those who has committed cosmic treason. You will stand before God and give an account. That's a frightening day. But here's the good news. Jesus said, whosoever will come, let him come. God's, in John 3, 16, the Bible says, for God so loved you, the world, that he gave his only begotten son so that you may not perish but have everlasting life. The good news is today you can be transferred from being in Adam's race to a new race, Christ's race, 
because Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you. His perfect life becomes your life, and it is over. Only a fool would say, do you know what? I'll stick with Adam. Then you will stick with the consequences of that choice. But Christ came to say, come to me and died for us. If you're a Christian today and you know that and you're in it, cease from your striving. Cease from your fears. Cease from your guilt. They are not God-given. It's over. It's finished. Rest in the perfect work of Christ, not in you looking at you, but you looking at him. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to enjoy the gospel and the grace of God. That's why we are gospel-centered. Why? Because I need to hear this every day. Because every day, the tendency of my heart is to look to me and feel good or bad about how I live. But every day, I want to look to Christ and say, you lived the perfect life. You died the perfect death in my place. You are now my head. I am in you. No condemnation for me. And nothing will separate me from your love. So, Lord, I pray. Oh, I pray that we... And this church lives in the good of the glory of the gospel. Feel the weight of your finished work on their behalf. Lord, may we be people that do not look to our own hearts, to our own lives, and get some sense of either satisfaction or condemnation because of them, but look completely, entirely, solely, absolutely to what you have done for us. Lord, may we gather around the cross, not wanting to leave that place where we know past, present, and future, you have bought us with your blood. We are redeemed from Adam's race, that your father's wrath is propitiated, put away onto you for us, and we are free in Christ. Lord, may that freedom fill our souls and minds. And in that, may we preach this gospel of free and sovereign grace to everyone we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.